Welcome to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How we consume it and how it informs our everyday culture. I'm Christian Sager, a writer and a designer. And I'm Charlie Bennett, a librarian and a radio raconteur. Each episode is us trying to understand the entertainment world that we all live in. Just a little bit better. Today's episode is about Lateralis by Tool. This 2001 record is raised as being metal for the thinking man. We peel back the lyrics and time signatures to understand why this band inspires an almost religious devotion in its fans. You can overthink and overanalyze with us at patreon.com slash supercontext. You can leave a comment on the episode post or you can write us an email at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com. What do you think of Tool? Which is your favorite time signature? Chris, I've been dreading recording this episode. Why? I thought this was one of the things that you really wanted to cover. Because I love Tool. That's why I'm dreading it. Oh, okay. I was dreading it because we have now done three albums in a row that you've chosen that are all about counting. (laughs) there is so much trivia to tool there are so many like ins and outs and fan kind of like traps yeah that i just i just want to talk about the record and i want to kind of place it a little bit in my time uh, of my life that i listen to it in Mm -hmm. but i it feels like one slip and we will be in some kind of uh, you know, do you know that Adam Jones actually did the flocking on the figure in the sober video yep. kind of thing? Yep. <laughs> so that's I've I've been dreading this um, a little bit. Well, yeah, I'll just say this: yeah, we, this has been on our list for over a year now. Um, we have had requests to talk about various Tool records. This is the one that you chose as like you think it's the most important to talk about to me. I don't hate Tool. I like Tool, fine. I I liked uh, the first two records, and then I just kind of stopped paying attention. And anytime somebody would bring them up or play a new record for me, I'd be like, that's cool. But like, it wasn't really something for me that I spent a lot of time with. What are the first two records for you? When you say the first two records, what are you saying? Gosh, what is it? There's Undertow, and then the one before, it's like an EP, right? Okay, so the EP and Undertow. Yeah. Oh, so... You stopped at Henry Rollins? Is that what you did? Exactly. As all things should be done. <laughs> that I still listen to that song all the time, and it cracks me up. It's a comedy song. It's not... I can't take it seriously because of him. He will hang shotgun shells from wire, it's Chris, so, it's as a so him to others. <laughs> uh, divergence. But uh, one of the things that I do with my free time is I watch those um, Amoeba Records videos where yeah, they have celebrities yeah, yeah. come in and, and talk about what's in their bag. And they I saw a Rollins one over the weekend, and it was hysterical, just like how self-important he was about talking about what was in his bag. Listen to you. He is your totem. He is your person. And yet you find him ridiculous. Uh, he's totally absurd. Uh, and he was, yeah, he was a role model for me until I was like, I don't know, 18 years old. And then I, I just, I don't know, grew past that, but (laughs) maybe, and I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not judging anybody here, 
but maybe that's what Tool is kind of like for me too, except for I don't think that they're silly. I'm just kind of like, eh, cool. I'm glad that that exists and somebody else really likes it. Now, here's what I was going to say before you said how much you were dreading this episode. Um, The people I know who like Tool really like Tool. Like, there's they are incredibly devoted to it and uh, i can illustrate that with an example so i had a friend well i still he's still my friend his name's dennis and dennis and i worked together while i was in college at a restaurant in uh, hampton new hampshire and dennis while we worked there liked tool so much that he got the same tattoo that maynard james keenan has on his back mm-hmm. the traced spinal column Oh, uh, yes. It, yeah. And and it was like a lot, you know, like it, he had to have multiple <laughs> sessions done. I remember when yeah. he had it finished, his blood sugar was low, but he was very excited about this because he was devoted to Tool. He they, they were in, like religiously important to him. And I've had other friends since then who feel the same way about this band. So the reason that I chose Lateralis as the Tool record for you and I to talk about Partly is because it came out when I lived in Boston. Oh, okay, that makes sense. There was a lot of talk about new metal in the uh, yeah, in the research for exactly. this, and I didn't anticipate that, but it makes sense. And another reason I chose this is because their most recent record, Fear Inoculum, came out last year, and I believe you remember in a minisode that I kind of took the piss with them a little bit, uh, uh-huh. because there is a lot to joke about in that record. But also, I am so devoted to Tool musically that it is sometimes hard to shake off some of the more ridiculous kind of uh, accoutrement that surround it. Okay. Yeah. 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 It seems uh, like the multimedia packaging is a big, uh, like, yeah, important yeah. thing. And then um, with Lateralis, 2001, um, I was not yet. 30. It was at a very transformative time in my life. And it is a record that I can still go back to and be sort of surprised or dismayed by. Whereas the records after it are interesting and powerful. And the records before it are, um, are like, yes, but lateralis was this kind of linchpin record for me. And that's why this is the one. Um, so I had never listened to this record until we did this episode. I'm sure this people might have be played really it at me. what I'm dreading. I, I, yeah. I am now prepared for your subjective opinion of lateralis in the year 2020. It's fine. That's it. God, that's the worst possible answer. Chris. Why? I, I just, <laughs> I listened to it yesterday while I was doing the research and I was like, cool. Okay. But it didn't like rock my socks off. Um, there were some parts where I was like, oh, I can see why like people are really into this. But um, it none of it struck me the same way that those two first two records did when I was in high school. Um, and all joking aside, can you talk about what it was like? I know you didn't just hear it and be like, Bleh, right. So like, what did you hear and what do you think was missing or added that made it not like the first two for you? Um. It just, it felt hypnotic, which I think is maybe part of what people really like about it. Maybe tribal is another term I would use. Like, 
Uh, and a after doing the research, I guess I can understand why. Like, that seems like a thing they were going for. Um, uh, it has... Tool is a band that uses bass in a way, unlike mm, other bands of this kind of alternative art metal genre. And so the bass, for me, is kind of hypnotic uh, and... and provides it's it's less of like a rhythm and more of just like this pulsing that goes mm -hmm. on in the background uh and then the drums are kind of tribal i read this incredibly convoluted interview with the drummer about how he yeah. drums and and how he it's something about geometric patterns that he marks on all of his drums and stuff and it was uh confusing but i guess that's what it makes it sound like this yeah. Um, but it didn't like jump out at me as like, oh, wow, like this is, this is, uh, I don't know, inspiring. And this is then is the other piece of why I'm, uh, why I was feeling a little reluctant to do the actual recording of this tool as a band of four individuals is kind of a, a gang of pranksters, especially in terms of how they talk to the media. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of bullshit that sort of surrounds the record and their image. Yeah, which is, is similar to the Faith No More stuff yeah. we discovered. Yeah. And in many ways it's um it's it's very calculated bullshit because it's not fantasy. It's more like extreme versions or parodic versions of their own beliefs, uh -huh. maybe. Yeah. So there's a little bit of no trivia, you know, like no no deep dives because there are levels of um unreliability yeah and i did my best with the research to try to peel that stuff away but if we start getting into things and you realize like oh this is this is all farce i think this is one of the joke so. paths yeah yeah i'll try um so this is a record by the band tool that came out in 2001 uh it is apparently important because it's one of the longest single cds ever recorded at 78 minutes and 51 seconds there was a lot of joking in the press uh, that they said 79 minutes was the limit that any CD could take. Okay. And so we gave them a few seconds breathing room. And it was a long record. They they went yeah. from playing, you know, slightly extended rock songs to these big prog rock style, you know, suites or yeah. songs with sections. There's a bit in one of the interviews where the drummer says the producer convinced him to take out one of the sections of mm -hmm. the song lateralis hmm. and my response to that when i read it was there was another chunk of this song it is already so much it well, didn't need it, another chunk it's interesting that you point that out because they they talk about how they write their songs and how they choose which chunks do and do not make it to the final cut yeah. um so maybe we'll get to the the heart of that I guess the way to approach this is we're going to talk about each member and their contributions and what they said specifically about this record. And then we will get into the producer who you just mentioned and the record company, the pu publisher that put this out. And there was a lot of legal contention around this record with them. Uh, and, and then the rest of the episode will go the way we, we normally do. We'll talk about reviews. We'll talk about how it was received. It won a lot of awards. A lot of people were excited about this on a critical level. Um, and then there's, there's a lot of thematic 
navel gazing about this record um, that we will get into, but try to do quickly and not go too deep down particular rabbit holes about Fibonacci sequences and things like that. Yes, please. Let's not do that. Um, very quickly, let me place Lateralis in the history of the band. Uh, so in 1992, they released an EP called Opiate, um, which was uh, a rocking piece of, of uh, L.A. metal. You know? That was the first and, thing I had by them. Yeah. Uh, Undertow came out the year after. And that's when I heard about Tool because the uh, Sober video, which was on MTV a lot, mm-hmm. was a stop motion, uh, creepy video, kind of like the Brothers Key um, sort of uh, video. A couple years after that, in 1996, Anima came out. And that was a much bigger, grander record. It was... Uh, more in line with the sort of prog rock stuff that we talk about these days with Tool. Five years later, Lateralis came out. The fourth record, third LP. It was five years after Lateralis that their next record came out, and then it was 13 years before the next record came out, which was last year. Okay. So Lateralis was kind of this moment when suddenly... Tool began to take a long time to do records. Mm. There's some legal issues. So Lateralis is also this kind of starting point for one version of the band. So I know we're being really subjective up front, but I want to um, I want to establish something. Because, like I said, I started listening to them in high school when their first two records came out, and then I kind of tuned out. And so to me, subjectively, this is what Tool was as a band. Um, artsy animation dudes who did those like cool videos that you mentioned like all their videos were sort of these dark puppet stop motion creepy things um the other thing that people associated tool with when i was listening to them was like whoa the bass player plays bass like a guitar and the guitar player plays guitar like a bass um and that maynard james keenan kind of had these pseudo philosophical uh, psycho drug trippy lyrics. Yeah. Uh, sort of like, I don't know, like this, like dark poetry about maybe about like, uh, existentialism. And then occasionally people like Henry Rollins would show up and, and throw out a couple of, uh, lines of slam poetry over a bridge or two. That's that's pretty much like my experience with them. And now I'm sure me saying that is like insulting. So tell me like what it is, why this band is important to you. Because I know this is going to be the thing I think that's important for us to talk about at the end is like why all this stuff inspires so much devotion. Like more, more than any other band, I think, that you've brought to the table for us. This band inspires a kind of like... uh, uh, almost ritualistic fandom. Yeah, I, I think that Tool, especially the last three records, occupies kind of a magic, you know, with a K place oh, for okay. some people. Yeah, I think that yeah. there is a ritualistic or ecstatic kind of fanship. Um, I don't think everybody, I don't think it's like, oh, if you're a Tool fan, then you are thinking about chakras and uh, expanded consciousness but that is throughout their records especially once they got past um the kind of 
self-loathing sort of aspect to some of the the first records. Yeah. Um, and by self-loathing, I mean that the lyrics by Keenan appeared to be about um, uh, I am just a worthless liar is one of the key lines from Sober. You mm-hmm. know, like this kind of abjection moving into, especially with Lateralis, a kind of inward-looking um, universal kind of expansion of consciousness. And so there's a little bit of a, uh, maybe you don't do psychedelic drugs, but you can listen to Tool and try and find a place to feel like you're getting outside yourself. Yeah, so that's exactly my sense of, of why people really, really like it. Um, another friend of mine, my former co-host, po- podcast co-host, Robert Lamb, is absolutely devoted to this band. And and uh, the, all the things you just described are like, they check off boxes that are Robert's interests. Yeah, yeah. And so that, and, and that's also why Tool can sometimes feel like um, a band like Rush or King Crimson, mm-hmm. just sort of a, oh God, I don't want to hear about what you have to say about your favorite fucking band <laughs> sort of band. <laughs> well, I, I mean, there is, I, I'm not saying this to be derisive, but there is something that's kind of fascinating about all these dudes, because it's mostly dudes who like these bands, that they're just really into counting like the, the, <laughs> keep saying that. the counting is super important. And uh, I have a theory about this that yeah. will come up when we get into our representation section. Okay. Okay. Because I have a theory too. Um, oh, nice. Dueling but, theories. <laughs> why don't we start off with the guitar player who is also known as the like art director, basically. Uh, his name is Adam Jones and he directs those videos that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And does uh, some sculptures or directs the sculptures that are made that then are part of the uh, the album art. Okay. Um, an artist who I am familiar with from knowing Robert Lamb, uh, Alex Gray, did the cover art for this record. Uh, and he was connected to Adam Jones. Gray, I think Jones found Gray's work. Uh, Gray does these kind of hyper colorful anatomical renderings yeah let me do my best to describe it i'm just popping it up real quick to look at it and i'm going to say what i see so it's like a, a visible man you know peeled skin anatomical diagram but there's this uh, spiritual drill going straight down through his head or maybe outside of it into his um, innards with third fourth fifth and sixth eyes uh, throughout his body um, some kind of magical pentagramish, hexagonish, whatever thing haloing his head and then more sort of spiritual curves and dots. Like it's, mm-hmm. it could be religious iconography very easily um, if you weren't paying too much attention to it. Yeah. If you've, if you're listening and you've never seen this guy's work before, take a second to like do like a Google image search and take a look. Cause it's pretty fascinating. There are some consistent themes I would say through most of his work and um, it is really uh, eye-grabbing. And Adam Jones, he was a special effects um, guy. He part of the effects crew for a number of movies. I want to read real quick uh, his filmography from IMDb. From 1985 up to 1993, he has credits. Uh, 
Return of the Living Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Pet Cemetery, Ghostbusters 2, Nightmare on Elm Street 5, Dances with Wolves, Predator 2, Edward Sitterhands, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Batman Returns, and Jurassic Park are all movies that he is credited as being part of the art department. Huh. Okay. Or special effects crew. Okay. Uh, and then by the time the videos came out uh, for Prison Sex and Sober, that's the end of his special effects credits on IMDb. Oh, okay. So the videos that have come out since then are not his. Uh, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say that it would appear that he stopped doing day job special effects work gotcha. after Undertow's um, sure. videos were made. Okay. And then we get to the singer, Maynard James Keenan. Uh, he is listed here in one of the pieces. They say uh, when they perform songs, he'll move to the back of the stage when they perform live. While specialized artwork or claymation is shown above, uh, usually either created by Jones or Gray, and a reviewer says that this is intentional because it encourages the listener to focus on what is being said in the songs rather than glorifying the singer. Yeah, and the the videos for their songs are usually mostly artistic, not so much performance. Um, In fact, from a a Spin Magazine story, the cover story in 2001 about the band and their upcoming record, Keenan tells this story. Once Adam Jones and I were leaving the Hollywood Palladium after seeing a show, and after we said goodnight and split to go to our cars, some kid runs up to me frantic. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Were you just talking to Adam Jones from Tool? I was like, yeah, he's cool. You should go talk to him. He might take you out to dinner. Okay. Maynard's profile is not as a front man. It is as a singer or a sort of costumed performer. Yeah. And he's hard to recognize when he's just out and about. And he is involved in other projects that are pretty successful. A perfect circle being one of the more notable ones. Yeah. And that's important to know because that was a band that he was in while this record was being written. Okay. And then Justin Chancellor is the bass player. And I, I was unaware of this, but apparently the original bass player, Paul DeMore, left after Undertow. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting because, like I said, like the bass playing in the sound was a very specific thing to this band. Yeah. So and there's Justin... got to be a certain amount of like Justin Chancellor trying to replicate that. Yeah. Well, Chancellor said that he was a big fan of the band before and a fan of Paul Delmore before he left and that he was even, uh, he turned down the audition the first time Tool asked him to come out. He's English. He was in a band called Peach that uh, kicked him out as soon as he said he was going to go audition for Tool. I found this uh, bit from him in the, the same Spin Magazine article. He says, it's hard to keep a band together, but in our case, it's just worth it. Uh, and then Keenan says, what we have in common is the ability to listen. You just listen to each other and find some space in the center. And if there isn't room for you there, then you wait until there is. Which is kind of interesting. I mean, Chancellor is the only replacement member. You know, mm-hmm. the, the bass player uh, was a founding member. He's gone. And now Chancellor has been with the band for 20-something years. And so Lateralis uh, is, you know, his first record where he was part of the band from the record before on. Mm. Also then Maynard sort of went off and did his own thing, you know, as they built up to Lateralis. Uh, The drummer who we'll mention in a second says Maynard was gone for a lot of the writing of the record off doing his perfect circle thing, 
We didn't quit working because he was away. He was around jamming for a while. But there was a while where he was off and it was the three of us making music first. And then Keenan would come back and add lyrics to it. I think there, I, I'm not saying I dislike Keenan's vocals, but I think there's like an interesting alternate reality where this is an instrumental band. And yeah, it's for like sure. very like meditative, kind of like ohm. Like there's just this sort of pulsing, like almost Middle Eastern metal vibe to it. Yeah. In, in the most recent record, it's really obvious to me that there is music that then someone is singing over. Mm, okay. You know, like it, it feels very much like uh, it was written in pieces. So then Danny Carey is the drummer and he also uh, does like electronic stuff like sampling on this record. And there's a long interview I found with him from Modern Drummer magazine that came out when this album came out. And they describe where, not where they recorded this, but where their practice space is. And it's his studio in Hollywood. Um, They wrote the bulk of Lateralis there. And this is the description from Modern Drummer magazine. You enter into the studio from a tiny alley behind a health food store and are greeted by a mural that looks like a boy's night outside of a death ranch. Skeletons linger under spotlights, cobwebs coil ominously. Inside the studio is perpetually dark. When the lights are turned up, you understand why. A large geometric grid like the artwork on Carrie's pads, his drum pads, cover the ceiling, which is also decorated with gargoyles, dinosaur mobiles, and skulls. 200-year-old swords once used by Carrie's father in Masonic rites adorn the walls, along with more geometric designs, a mace, a virtual occult library, a bronze bust by the sculptor Shulkowski, framed photos of Carl Palmer, an Aphex twin poster, and a weird-looking Jacob's Ladder, like you might see in a Frankenstein movie. There's a large Enochian magic board embellished with the names of various <laughs> angels used to channel spirits. That what is an behind... Enochian magic board? I feel like you are the person who would know that because of your previous work yeah, on, I, on I other do, podcasts. I do know what that is, actually. Um, they are like ritualistic devices used in summoning spells. Uh, Enochian is uh, supposedly like an angelic language. In fact, I think the guy who created Enochian is referenced later on in here, but John D worked with him. Um, And uh, yeah, the boards are essentially like these things that you would put candles on and you would draw geometric designs that uh, were symbols for each particular angel or demon that you wanted to summon and get advice from. So this is where the tool as some kind of ritual magic uh, or ritual magician kind of band yeah. comes from. For me, you know, the diagrams on his drums, on Danny Carey's drums, appear to be magical symbols. So a it's lot like, of yeah, it's like it. It seems like visually reminiscent of either like this Enochian style magic from like the Lesser Key of Solomon or like Kabbalah. Um, yeah, which is interesting because the other time that we've tapped into this area the roles were switched and it was a Grant Morrison episode. I think it was nameless. And you were the one who was like, I just don't care about this stuff. And I was kind of (laughs) like, I know more about this than I should, but I also don't really like, I don't buy into it, but like, I find it kind of visually interesting. Yeah. And for me, I, I, this is the stuff that I have to put up with to enjoy tool. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yeah. and, And by that, I mean that for me, I am not so interested in, the uh, occult trappings, the spooky junk, um, 
the uh, kind of Kabbalistic, somewhat Indian, global kind of uh, magical theism mm. or mm-hmm. sort of, you know, what is it? What do you call it when you think of yourself as the summation of the universe and all gods? What's the name for that particular religious belief? Oh, I don't know. There's got to be a word for it, but yeah. I'm, I'm not able to come up with it off the top of my tongue. If you were to say that Tool appears to be a band of a kind of religion, it would be a religion that presented the human mind as mm-hmm. the encompassing of the universe. Yeah, and so this is kind of interesting to me, right? Because I am I am interested in dabbling with that stuff and kind of finding how different peoples over the years have tried to use those religions or those symbols as mm, like frameworks for understanding the world. Yeah. Uh, That's interesting to me. But like, it's funny when I was reading stuff like this, I was like, this is in a way cultural appropriation. And I'd never really thought about it like that before, but it sort of is. And it, it made me think like, Oh, Grant Morrison's doing a bit of cultural appropriation there as well. Yeah. And and so I, uh, I'm not ready to really unpack that particular assessment, yeah. but I, we do have something from Danny Carey here that I think should be added to what you just said. Yeah, yeah. So the interviewer says, hey, sometimes it seems like you all are trying to put forth an image of being like heavy metal, satanic, magical, crazy people. Uh, is this just, you know, you doing you or is this some kind of plot to create an image? And Danny Carey says, there's no effort to appear any certain way. We just want to stay true to what we do. Maybe because we dig a little deeper within each other, stranger things come out that people that people aren't exposed to. If you're not familiar with something, instead of being curious, an instinct is to fear it. That can lead to misperceptions. So this part, like I can relate to, and I'll, I'll tell you like a, a modern kind of a, a equivalent to this. Um, since I've moved to Portland, I've noticed that there are different um, like hobbyist art communities and one of them is is labeled by the others as quote witchy uh and like right. it's like you know candles that have occult symbols on them but they're they're just candles but the marketing like the branding is done up so it's kind of like dark art or i think magic it's as kitschy as someone who has a bunch of saint candles when they don't believe in the Catholic yeah. church yeah uh, when you like the like if you're into broken glass and roses <laughs> <laughs> right. That might be a, an aesthetic style, but that does not automatically make you a late 80s goth. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, is what it ends up being associated with a lot of time or like darker types of metal. Um, I am aesthetically kind of drawn to things like that, but I am also not necessarily like um, uh, devoted to any kind of uh, uh, specific like f- theories of enlightenment surrounding right. it. Um, the drummer gets a lot of attention because of the sort of the seeming primacy of his uh, his drumming when it comes to how the songs are written. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, an interviewer around this time said, a lot of the songs on Lateralis sound as if they're built around the rhythms you play. And I, I'm going to insert here rhythms that seem to be inspired by uh, world music yeah. and occult and weird ideas counting and you know 
chakra looking patterns. And Danny Carey says, some of the songs are built around the drumming, but just as many were built around bass and guitar riffs. I tried to stay as open as possible when we were jamming or when people were coming in with new ideas for riffs. I think another reason people talk about the drumming so much is the time signatures. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and that comes up with him as well. Yeah. Right. Yep. The counting that, yeah. So if you all didn't understand what I meant before about the counting, there's a lot of like, what, how many measures, how many beats are in each of these things? Um, and which it, it just seems surprising to me. Like this is a band that it seems like you would just listen to and kind of enjoy the the rhythm and the motion of the songs but there's a lot of like trying to uh demystify like decode what these songs quote mean i don't think demystify i think decode is the right way to say it yeah you know they talk about their writing sessions as being long jams that they record and then they return to and find the bits that are really cool and i think uh, as carrie says find the jewels that pop up and i think that creates this kind of hypnotic or rhythmic sort of riff because if you jam for two hours, maybe on drugs, maybe not, you find the thing that feels kind of mystical and organic and those don't always end up being four, four. Sure. Right. Yeah. Planning it, but the things they find are in different time signatures or have different tones to them. Well, let's jump ahead actually, because this is relevant. There's a point where they ask him about the time signatures and he immediately says, there is never any mention of time signatures ever. There have been times where I will play a weird beat and one of the guys will want to play something over it. And then occasionally we have to use meter as a metaphor to get the point across. And we'll say, play over this meter of 5 or 15, just so there'll be a meeting point for us somewhere. It mainly comes in the arranging stages, like when we're trying to find ways to string things together in a subtle way. So what I hear right there is that what he means is they don't start with the time signatures, but they do talk about time signatures after they've generated riffs. Yeah, after they find what they like, they then have to decode it. Okay. Right? Or or apply a structure to it so that they can actually continue to play it night mm-hmm. after night. You know, it's interesting. The more we unpack this, the more I realize like how close Tool is to a lot of my other aesthetic interests, but that I just haven't particularly gone down this path, even though like it's uh it's like right in the middle of a bunch of Venn diagrams for me. Yeah. Um, I have a quote from Danny about uh, playing the songs over and over again. Uh, you want to leave yourself a band wants to leave yourself more space for improvisation as you grow older. That's for sure. This is, he was 40 when this uh, record was coming out. You know you're going out on tour and you have to play these songs every night, so you want to leave yourself room to move so you don't become tired of the tunes. But our tunes have become good enough emotional vehicles for us that I don't grow weary of them. Talks about working very hard to make these songs that are interesting to play and make them feel a certain way as much as they are interesting to the audience. Yeah, yeah. So here's a section that I need you to unpack for me because he's talking about how they're working hard on writing the music and they're rehearsing and they just casually says, it's hard for us to be satisfied with the runes. So we all dig deeper and deeper into our individual parts, trying as many possibilities as we can before recording. What does he mean by runes? Um, okay, so when I first read that, I thought that that was a typo, that that was tunes. 
Oh. Is, that, is it for sure runes? No, maybe it is tunes. He does refer to the songs as tunes later yeah. on. So, okay. I Although, thought maybe like no, he, no, I, he I, was I, like, oh, we only <laughs> refer to uh, verses as runes. No, no. I Okay, so that's my first response. Is like, I think that's supposed to be tunes. But then I have an answer if you think of them as runes. Mm-hmm. So this interviewer says, do you carry the Enochian, Enochian or Enochian? Uh, I think. I don't know what the correct pronunciation okay. is. Yeah. Do you carry the magic board into the studio when you record? And Danny says, yes, we try to take advantage of every tool available. We'll use whatever it takes to get the best recording we can get in the optimum position to make music. Mm-hmm. When people come to see us, now here we go. Danny Carey says, when people come to see us, I want to make it as much of a ritualistic experience as possible. If that means trying to emulate five African drummers, then that's what I'll do. And that's a little that's sort of a statement of people think that Danny Carey is an amazing drummer and mm. they feel like his uh, limb interdependency and his sense of time are outstanding. But on top of that, they are also kind of playing around with fucked up shit to make the stuff interesting to them when they're playing well, the songs. I mean, let's let's unpack that. Fucked up shit is just foreign really like to American audiences, right? Like he's talking about world music and like references to occultism from like 500 years ago. Now I feel comfortable calling the magic board fucked up shit. (laughs) (laughs) So you're telling me you've never summoned an angel. I I don't think so. I mean, I I hope I have on occasion without knowing it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, again, like I could see why the Enochian board would be kind of like a fun way to um, try to symbolize like other philosophical thoughts that you had about things or even or even just writing music. Right. And you're yeah, using Enochian feeling in the room. Right. To, yeah. Like knock you off the track of whatever you were doing. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, it doesn't seem to me from reading the interviews with these guys that they actually think they're doing magic. I don't think that I here is where the core of are they pranksters? Are they sort of into it? Are they fully into it kind of comes in because they are um, unserious at, while they are serious. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there's a, a piece from Revolver by Ryan Reed where uh, he talks about some stuff that they've done to mess with people, both fans and not fans. Uh, Reed writes, during the preceding hype for Lateralis, Tool teased a fake album title and track list where they chose song names that sounded like them but were not. For instance, songs called Malfeasance, UVR, Number Reft, and Cephatalis, Mummery, Coliacus, Pain Canal, Lactation, Smearma, and River Christ. I especially like Pain Canal and River Christ. Those are, these are like the kind of jokes that you would hear on Metalocalypse. Exactly. And they are doing that not just to be like, hey, isn't that funny that we might do a record like this? They put this out on file sharing in order to confuse people who were going to download and, and spread their record. Mm-hmm. But even when we're talking about how they, they kind of make fun of themselves or make fun of other people, their fans and sometimes they themselves get deep into the kind of overdone 
nerdy prog rock stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, there is a Fibonacci sequence uh, built into one of the songs, like explicitly, like on purpose. Yeah. And I don't, uh, I don't even want to do this. (laughs) I'm just going to say the Fibonacci sequence, which is where every uh, number in the sequence is the sum of the two preceding it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, which I guess goes 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, 89, 144, 233, 377, 610, 987, and then so forth. And I believe geometrically that's expressed as the golden ratio. They found ways to do 9, 8, and 7 as time signatures of a song that they were going to call 987. Um Maynard Keenan uh, wrote some lyrics that matched up with those numbers. They didn't just like say it and then say, aha, yeah, Fibonacci. Like they actually did work on it in sort of a, another kind of knock things out of the way, yeah. uh, knock things out of the groove kind of um, uh, writing process. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the Fibonacci thing, not getting into the math of it, but the sort of thematic aspect of it later in the episode but there is a quote here from keenan that's recent from just a couple years ago he was on joe rogan's show and he said that he he regrets doing the fibonacci sequence thing he said i feel like i kind of pulled a very pedestrian sophomoric move by including numbers in there and in general music is in the golden ratio Quote, all nature, all these things we're talking about is already here. By pointing it out and staring at it and pointing at it with those numbers present and the way the numbers and the lyrics are, I feel it's good to let people know about it, but I feel like kind of it was a dick joke in a way. I could do better. I don't think I don't think it was a dick joke. I think it was a dick joke. I think that he was saying it was just far too obvious, right? Like, yeah, I mean... I don't really have a take on this. I, I I get it. I get like the fascination with it and I get him feeling regret over it that it's like maybe it would have been. I think what he means is it would have been better if I wasn't just pointing to it and saying like, look, look, look how cool yeah. we are. It was it was obvious and it kind of leaned into the base nature of a prog rock fan. Yeah. Um, and then there's some talk about the production on this record that there was. I mean, I would just say that there's just sampling over it. It's not uh, it's not anything like revolutionary, but it's referred to here as, quote, lots of layered weird shit in the mix that they indulged in in the studio. So I, I think that uh, if you compare this to, say, Limp Biscuit and Corn, <laughs> uh-huh. that were quite big on the radio when this came out. Yeah. It is filled with weird shit, right? Like there's... There's little interstitial bits, and uh, they use some some noises on songs that uh, you might not expect. Uh, do you remember the final track? Yeah, I remember being like, <laughs> yeah, he I says, remember looking over and being like, oh, this is the last song. Okay, like there were a lot of samples, and I was like, all right, that's fine. Yeah, a recording from a radio show, and a lot of uh, hard to listen to screeching and some frenetic drumming. And it's from coast to coast AM, right? That's right. Yeah. Art, so art bell again, like making sense within the aesthetic nature of this whole thing, right? Like art bell is kind of a, a signifier for people who were into quote weird shit. Yeah. 
uh, it just doesn't I, seem weird to me, but maybe it's because I, I'm so immersed in it already. Yeah. I mean, weird shit is such a, such an inaccurate or un, unspecific kind of phrase. Like I called mm-hmm. the magic board weird shit and I meant it. <laughs> you know? Well, here's some of the things. Let, let's list some of the things. Cause, uh, uh, Carrie talks about it when he's in this modern drummer thing. He says, uh, he pulled some didgeridoo samples. He, uh, made some Tibetan monk sounds. They, uh, made noises through a vocoder. Uh, what else? He broke a piano. Oh yeah. There's that. And then, uh, oh, here's one. Keenan squeezed his Siamese cat and the sound that the cat made, they put on the record. So it's said that it's a slowed down sound of him squeezing his cat. And I have taken that track and sped it up in audacity. Uh Uh-huh. And it's a lot more than a cat. And then there's this bit about the production quote. The album title is something of a dual reference. It nods to both the thigh muscle, vastus lateralis, and the concept of lateral thinking, which is itself a muscle. And although the title does have something to do with the muscle, it's more about lateral thinking. How the, quote, <laughs> only way to really evolve as an artist or as a human, I think, is to start trying to think outside the lines and push your boundaries, as Keenan told Agroactive in 2001, Take yourself where you haven't been and put yourself in different shoes. All those cliches. So he ends it by saying all those cliches. Like yeah. He kind of knows this is, you know, uh, somewhat ubiquitous. I want to plant a flag here for myself. Mm-hmm. It is easy for me to dismiss or deride the extra stuff. As much as like, oh yeah, they sampled a didgeridoo. Is that really all that weird? Mm-hmm. Or Fibonacci sequence. But at the same time, it's very easy for me when I am listening alone and enjoying myself to kind of sink into the the sort of immersive production of the record. Sure. Yeah. To try and allow myself to feel some kind of consciousness expanding while listening to one of the long songs that like the title track has those nine, eight, sevens as the time signature and a couple sections that really build up to a a powerful kind of like, ah, sort of finish. Yeah. And I get really into that. Mm-hmm. I love doing that, but it also feels a little bit like, Oh God, I don't want to tell anybody about that. I don't want to say, well, <laughs> yeah. When he says spiral out, keep going. Yeah. I kind of feel my, I feel myself leaving my body just the tiniest bit. I think you, you know? are, you are finding that you, uh, through tool understand Grant Morrison or in how people like me relate to him. Absolutely. More than you thought, you know, yeah, there's, there's a real say, similar thing going on here. If ever I say, I don't like Grant Morrison, I'm not saying, you know, I don't like how Grant Morrison uses that stuff. Uh-huh. I just find that it turns out I don't like his writing very much. Yeah. Even though I have enjoyed the invisibles so much, but I don't dismiss him because he, indulges in magic i mean i'd have to stop reading alan moore if i was going to do that yeah well that's why i was about to bring up both of those guys actually because i think in a lot of ways in their both in their prose and in their comics they are referencing the same things aesthetically but they're also doing the prankster thing that tool says they're doing in that like they're I, I, I don't believe either Alan Moore or Grant Morrison believe they're casting eldritch spells like Doctor Strange right. or Gandalf. 
I think they think of it as a, a system for understanding symbols that represent actions in the universe, right? And I think Tool are probably doing the same thing too, but all of them are playing into this like spooky, weird aesthetic that hangs yeah. over it as like part of the brand. An experience that is more than just, hey, this is cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, David Bottrell is the producer. He's a Canadian producer. And uh, he summed up what he did on Lateralis as saying, I help more with the structure of some of the songs. I remember campaigning to lose a section of the song Lateralis that Danny liked a lot. I think he is still a little sorry it didn't make it into the song. Uh, let me read from uh, Bottrell's credits. Yeah, a few I just did the same records. thing because uh, I, I realized I hadn't pulled it. So, yes, please do, because now what, that I'm looking at it. Yeah. What it sticks f- out for you, Chris? Oh, well, cl- you know, King Crimson is obviously important to you. Um, but then bands like uh, Dream Theater, Mudvayne, Silverchair, Godsmack, Stains. Uh, I don't really know Muse very well, but there's a lot of N-U with an umlaut metal in here. There is, and it's kind of strange to see it. Also, Smashing Pumpkins, and he was uh, part of the team that remixed Vapor Trails by Rush. Okay. So this is like a real prog rock guy overlapped with new metal. It's an odd mix of progressive thinking man's rock and the kind of, dude, my dick, sort of heavy metal that was really big in 2001. Have you seen this commercial that's on TV right now? It's, I think it's an insurance commercial. And this woman's stuck. No, it's a car commercial. This woman's okay. car only plays Limp Biscuit, and she can't turn it off. <laughs> and so she's driving around doing all the... peek like, the microphone, dude. <laughs> she's doing all the, like, soccer mom things, like going to the grocery store, dropping her kids off at school, et cetera. And it's just always playing Limp Biscuit, and she looks miserable, right? So she, she did it for the nookie? The nookie? That's the joke. And then she pulls up to a crosswalk, and Fred Durst crosses in front of her. And even he looks at the car like, what are you doing? And then she goes and trades in her car for a better car. Um, I have to admit that if I was in the writer's room for that one, I would have been like, this is going to be great. Let's do it. I mean... I think, it, I think I'm suckered by it. It definitely caught my attention. I, I... It comes up later on. I'm bringing this up because there are comparisons between Tool and that genre of music in here. Um, this is kind of like when you thought Refused were like those bands. Yes, when I just sort of lumped them in because the name sounded like a bunch of other names. Yeah, and uh, um, they very clearly in their adherence are like, no, like this is not the same thing. We are not the same as that. And they they use that term you just used a lot, thinking mans, or uh, the people who listen to Tool read books, and the people who listen to Limp Biscuit don't. Yeah, there is uh, there's some pretty arrogant self description, which you know, part of me is like, yeah, that seems right, but part of me is also like, you have no idea unless you met those guys. Although they, they probably have, have. And, yeah. And I guess like that's what I'm saying is uh, this David. Bottrell guy, you know, he produced this record and other records for Tool, but like he was working within that genre. And so he must have had to have played like a, uh, he must have walked a fine tightrope, right? Between uh, the, the like thinking man reading musicians and the like, you know, tough guy, new metal stuff. 
Also, he says, I helped more with the structure of some of the songs. I think that Bottrell was probably less um, a kind of a studio dad, less of a running the, the recording, because all of the tool guys sort of present themselves as interested in the technology, interested in you know how they are creating the whole sound, uh, whereas I kind of imagine that he created the sound for some of the other albums that he worked on. Um, the drummer Danny also mentions that when they're in the studio, they didn't think about the order of the songs until they got to the mastering lab and that they wrote the song titles down on pieces of paper and then shifted those around. And that's how the final order came out. Uh, and, and he said it was almost exactly the order in which we had written them. Now, this is what's interesting to me is there's this big deal made about how there's a like an alternate version of this record. Uh, where the songs are just in a different order? Well, it's like it matches the Fibonacci sequence somehow. Uh, Okay, okay. Um, So it wasn't super intentional when they were doing it the first time around, and then afterwards they were like, well, this Fibonacci thing has got legs. Let's apply it to the whole record. No, no, no. they did not come up with this other... Um, oh. This is kind of like someone saying, hey, there's a cut of The Phantom Menace where we took out Jar Jar Binks. Oh, okay. This is like okay. a fan-suggested order for the record Gotcha. that may or may not be more magically effective. Okay, okay. Which goes back into the numerology. Okay. Um, they One of the things that surprised me was how many places they recorded it at. And I think all of these are in L.A. They just recorded at a lot of different studios. Cello Studios, The Hook. Big Empty Space and The Lodge were all locations they recorded this record at. And what does that make you think of if you hear that a band recorded at multiple studios? Just a lot of work. Like you're you're picking up the equipment and moving it from one place to another. And there's a lot of time involved there and a lot of expenses in the like taking the time to set up the microphones twice or, uh, you know, uh, talking about this producer Botril, like figuring out how each board works. Yeah. And I have to wonder if this is uh, a sign of the multiple responsibilities that each of them had. I mean, Danny carries a session drummer. He played on a Carol King record. Okay. You know, Maynard has his other band. I can only imagine that Adam Jones and Justin Chancellor have, more than a few things that they're doing. And so they broke up the recording into multiple multiple chunks of time and moved from studio to studio. Well, there's some discussion about this as well here in the next section, which is related to their record label as well. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, there was like five years between the last record and this one. Uh, Volcano Entertainment was the record label they were on. This record label was founded in 1996. So not this label wasn't even founded until after they'd been a band for a while. Uh, but they released records by bands like Tool, 311, Survivor, and Weird Al Yankovic. That's a, uh, a, a such a unified list. <laughs> it really seems like they had one particular thing they were going for. Volcano is now owned by RCA. It's a division of Sony. Originally, it was founded by a guy named Kevin Zinger, and uh, he apparently also owned Zoo Entertainment. He bought Zoo Entertainment from BMG in 1996, and I think he wanted Volcano and Zoo to be the same thing, but for some reason, financially, they were not. They were two separate things. 
and Zoo was uh, Tools Management. And so, like, Volcano started and released Anima, like, for Tool, I guess. Okay. This is where I start seeing things and I start thinking, uh, was this some kind of tax dodge? Was this, like, a bankruptcy <laughs> thing? Was this, you know, who? why would you do all these different moves, these incorporations and, and uh, you know, pieces of... Uh, pieces of the process. And then I read things like this lawsuit that I'm about to describe. And I think, well, this is just shenanigans, right? Mm -hmm. In 1997, long before lateralis tools, label volcano records filed suit against them, citing a wrongful attempt on the quartet's part to abandon its exclusive recording contract. The group then filed its own complaint claiming their contract had never been renewed and they were free to pursue other options. So it came out on Volcano, but they were uh, in a lawsuit with Volcano Records at the time that it came out? Well, it sounds like they uh, originally tried to do it with a different label, and the Volcano was like, no, your contract states that you have to do your your follow-up with us, that you owe us a record. and so they went to court over it and clearly tool lost in court because they ended up publishing this on volcano. Um, so there's a lot of conversation about whether or not this legal stuff is why the record took so long to come out and possibly why they were recording at all these different studios. Uh, and Jones was interviewed by guitar world after the record came out. And he said, it's not that we took four years to record the record. Uh, we spent a year or a couple years uh, touring behind anemia. And then uh, Maynard James Keenan left and did his Perfect Circle side group for a while. And then they did this album in about a year. And Joan says, to me, that's a pretty good recording process. But then he says, there's a lot of little things that got in the way of us completing the record on time. I think everything that could have gone wrong with this album did little things like broken gear to bigger issues like getting involved in a lawsuit with our label. I was telling the band as we got on a plane to go to the mastering studio, I wouldn't be surprised if it crashed. <laughs> Last year's record, Fear Inoculum, came out on Volcano. Really? Yeah. Okay. This is the, the five record contract has been fulfilled. Okay. Finally. Okay. Um, yeah. So, I mean, who knows what it is, but like, Clearly, Volcano is a business. There's some economic financial stuff that you and I would refer to as shenanigans uh, (laughs) going on behind the scenes. Tool doesn't seem particularly happy about it either, but legally, it seems like they're bound to these contracts. Yeah, they are paying attention to how the business works. I mean, I, I mentioned already the Napster thing. They released a fake album in order to mess with Napster and mess with this sort of, I mean, 2001 file sharing was just a few years old and uh, people were just starting. Well, aside from Metallica, people were just starting to notice that it was uh, taking money away from them and they've stayed off of streaming um, until last year. That's right. Oh, I didn't know that. God, I forgot about this until this moment. They were not on Spotify or any of the, you know, free play subscription services. Mm hmm. Until right before Fear Inoculum came out. Oh, okay. Okay. They just stayed off that. And I think they definitely had a um, a pain in the ass from Napster early on. Well, it says here that, yeah, like around the time this record came out, they were very concerned about file sharing. 
And this is from Revolver Magazine again, that tool fans and other pranksters helped spread that disinformation you mentioned earlier, specifically to mess with the file sharing. Uh, and then, oh, this is what you, you were talking about. The second version of the album was then released, but it was on YouTube. And it's referred to as the holy gift where the songs are rearranged to fit the sequence that, quote, reveals the true message that Tool were trying to portray, which is to be subjected to society's brainwashing and struggling to go against the grain while keeping your sanity. Now, that last part there, that's a bit of editorial uh, from Trevor Cheney, who wrote about this record for the Student News Network at Missouri Baptist University. I pulled that specifically to get a little bit of the... Um, the flavor of the devotion to this band. Yeah, because also I, I'm surprised you didn't read this part of Cheney's review. Lateralis was so sophisticated on its own that people didn't notice at first. Uh, yeah, there, there's stuff that uh, is said by him and, and other folks later on in our notes that like you have to listen to it for years before you can <laughs> understand the record. Yeah. Let's take a break. And uh, when we come back, Let's talk about how other people describe the listening experience. You know, Charlie, one of the nice things about uh, being a Patreon-supported podcast is uh, we don't have to worry about getting into a lawsuit with our uh, network or record company in the same way Tool had to with Volcano Records in 2000. That's right. We have complete control over our production and our fulfillment of our contracts. Hopefully there'll be no point where the patrons all band together and sue us. Yeah, I don't think they can. I think the terms of service say they can't. Oh, okay, good. Now, we should explain, anyone who is hearing a Patreon spot for the first time, we are bringing Super Context to a close. In May 2020, Super Context will cease production of regular episodes. So anybody who joins the Patreon campaign right now is coming in right at the end. And they're still doing it. And we really appreciate that. Yeah, but you should cool. know we're about to change everything. Right. But for the next two months, as we're recording this, your support is going to continue to help us do things like pay for our hosting fees, cover our expenses, and maintain our recording setup for well-done production. You may not know this if you just started listening i am on one side of the country of the united states of america and charlie is on the other and somehow it sounds like we're in the same room together while that's happening we will still have the special rewards like blooper reels outtakes bi-weekly bonus episodes and a monthly super king context which is an extra episode of super context focusing on stephen king adaptations into film and television March is Stand By Me, Chris. Are you ready for that? I am. We've only got two left, Stand By Me and Maximum Overdrive. So hang in there, folks. We are about to come to some conclusions about Stephen King's influences (laughs) on the 80s. What a pair of movies. And the last reward, the reward that is in this Patreon spot each episode, is thank yous to everyone, except... A couple people who said, please don't mention my name. I'll help you, but I just don't want to be associated with that. Uh, and a new patron. Again, like I said, people are still joining. Uh, and I think someone's having a little fun with us, too, because thank you, Luciano Fuck, for joining our Patreon campaign. I love some of the patron names that we are getting. Some people choose to use their real names. Other people do not. So let's go through the list 
Thank you to all of these folks for helping us out in the last couple months here. You people see if you can figure out which ones are pseudonyms. Thanks to Alex Laird, Alice Florence, Ambrose Allen, Amit Doshi, Andy Riggs, B.B. Schwells, Bennett Callahan, Beth Barnett, Beth Gilmore, Billy Whitehouse, Bing Bongman, Brandon Daniels, Brian Chovenich, Carolyn Zoids, Chris Martin, and Cliff Landis. And thank you to Coco and Dave Jordan, Dave Wachter, Elijah Tilstra, Evan Mapstone, Fred Rasco, Gregory C. Giordano, Ira James Udiskin, Jason Bingbong Puckett, Jim Taylor, Jess Staten, John Klima, John Pheasant, Joseph Aleo, and Juan Patton. Thank you also to Junta Slash Cult, Calvin Ellis, Carmela Padovich, Kate Sharon, Kevin Wetter, Christian Hirvola, Lee Fowler, Lokesh Dakar, Luigi Oswego, Melinda Hale, Miriam Meany, Misha Moon, and Nathan Weatherford. And thank you to Nick Sage, Patrick Malka, Pete Bow, Philip, R.M. Rhodes, the podcast Rain It In, Matt and Rachel, Roar Vinland, Rob Sloan, Robert Negoesco, Roman Marachek, and Romantic Placebo. And thank you to Ron Billado, Ross Llewellyn, Ryan O'Neill, Sari Nichols, Seth Friedman, Simon Workman, Tara Meshack, Thomas Tremberger, and Veilheit. If you would like to support Super Context and make up a name for yourself, head over to patreon.com slash supercontext. And we're back. You know, Chris, my fandom of Tool is a lot like a choose-your-own-adventure book. If someone were to come up and say, uh, you know, Tool, like, they're very sophisticated and quite interesting than the ritual of magic, and it's just so amazing. Most people can't really understand it, you know, unless you really listen to it over and over again. I think, oh, Jesus, will you shut the fuck up? Mm-hmm. However, if someone comes up to me and says, Tool sucks. They're boring. They're just metal. They're just like all those other fucking meatheads. I'd be like, hey, easy there. They really do a lot. Their records are quite complicated and uh, really interesting. And if you pay attention and listen deeply, you can get a lot out of them. It's totally just whichever you come at me with. Mm. Well, what what about when I just come at you with, this is okay. I like it just fine. I, I, I'm i sad that you don't have enough of a reaction for us to really get into it. <laughs> I think yeah, that would so be good you, podcasting. You, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, there's a couple things here that are statements from the band and other people that I want to get into before we look at the numbers for this record. Um, when it came out, Maynard James Keenan said specifically that the album itself is a product, and that's a fact of life. You can deny it to yourself, but deep down you know it's true, I heard fans say that we sold out when the last albums were successful. I had to agree with them. We are a product, but we're also true to what we believe. So this is like the end of the 90s definition of sold out and the beginning of the 2000s definition of sold out. So he's like starting to understand the nature of capitalism in relationship to his like magic band process. (laughs) Uh, that's um, that's the most dismissive and wonderful thing you've said the whole podcast. Uh, the drummer said this. There's a large percentage of people who are disgusted with the state of the music industry. And I think for those people, this record will be a breath of fresh air. I would like to think that Lateralis will break down all the barriers and it will start a whole new revolution in music. 
and show where the influence for a lot of music for the last few years has come from. That is uh, pretty grandiose, but this is where I look to you. Is this them fucking with the media? I don't know. I mean, if you listen to Tool, there's more to it than just like, oh, wow, man, what if we speed up Aerosmith? You know, like there's clearly (laughs) things coming in from the area of music that uh, prog rock is in. Yeah, 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 sure. But I, I don't know. I mean, you know what? We talked about Neil Peart speaking to a British journalist, yeah. you know, in the van and getting a little bit into it, getting a little bit overboard. I mean, all it takes is at one moment for someone to think, I just hope we break down all the barriers, you know, start a revolution in music. And next thing you know, you sound like you're trying to start a, a movement, you know? I, I think one of the things that I'm finding interesting about these quotes is that it seems like they weren't aware until around this time that they were um, like a commercialized product that other people were making money off of until they had to go through like this big legal battle. And then afterwards they were like, oh man, like everything about the music industry is terrible and like we're trying to set things right. And there's a certain amount of as much as they're like, they're really interesting in their their composition of the music and like they're trying to be challenging with the lyrics. There's like a bit of immaturity as well. And then like when you read the interviews with them later, like more closer to present day, they themselves seem to admit to that and be like, yeah, when I look back on that time, like we were being kind of pretentious and sophomoric. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. They were already talking about being product on the album before this. Yeah. And I think that they're just, you know, as they grow more and more uh, a a single unit that wants to start its own label, you know, wants to go off on its own, record the way they want to record, do their own thing. They're talking more and more about how, hey, we really don't care about the big labels. and We don't give a shit about the, oh, we do give a shit. We have to record for them. Fuck. Yeah. You and know? 25 years later, they're still with the same company, you know, like. It, there's there's something interesting going on behind the scenes here in terms of the uh, the nature of production and their like relationship as like creating art in relationship to that right like yeah. uh, it, I mean I liked those first two records and I I still listen to them pretty regularly I don't uh, like I don't have any illusions that they weren't also commercial like radio records I'm guessing they don't either yeah but but you don't say that in your promotional interviews until that's you've fair. burnt. Yeah, that's right? fair. Right, yeah. right. Okay. Um, and then there's this, which really sets the tone for the context. And this, this is, is a, a hell of a quote, a uh, hell of an excerpt. You yeah, so like you talk about this time and it seems like you were a lot more, you were paying a lot more attention to this than I was. I think I was so immersed in my own bullshit that I just didn't know that this was going on. I just kind of <laughs> peripherally was aware of it. So this is from Sam Law, who writes about the importance of this record years later for Kerrang! magazine. And he says, In the broader rock community, the shadow of grunge had subsided, and the subsequent wave of gritty alt-rockers was in retreat. In their place rose a far gaudier breed of superstar, looking past the joyously boneheaded purality of scene leaders like Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit and Blink-182, 
the likes of Lincoln Park and Marilyn Manson helped revive Rock's cult of personality. And then, Law writes, although the sound of lateralis is utterly singular, it needs to be placed in context. The record is haunted by the ghosts of 70s classic progsters King Crimson and near contemporaries like Jane's Addiction and Soundgarden. It should be taken, too, in light of contemporary releases including Deftones' White Pony, Opeth's Blackwater Park, Muse's Origin of Symmetry, and perhaps even Toxicity from their L.A.-based brethren in System of a Down. Yeah, so every single group that he just mentioned is somebody I'm aware of. And I just go, okay, that exists, but I don't, it, like, it doesn't, it's not for me. Yeah, this seems very much like L.A. metal journalism to me, you know? Oh. And I don't know where all those bands are from, but it just seems like someone who's talking about a particular moment in, uh, in metal. Especially because when Robert Fripp was asked, hey, do you hear King Crimson and Tool? Do you know what he said? No. He said, I don't hear us at all in Tool, except for one three-note figure that I believe sounds a bit like us. There's much more Tool in King Crimson than there is King Crimson in Tool. And then uh, from the notes, we, we know that the tour to promote this record was with King Crimson. Yeah, they, they tried to get King Crimson um, to be part of their tour. They did, and then they asked Fripp, the guitarist, if he would sit in, I think, on their sets. Which I don't think he did. I don't he mean to have. insult anybody here, Charlie, but surely King Crimson would be opening for Tool, right? Given the like the size of the band and their their like rock arena kind of presence. I'm pretty sure that was the deal, yeah, because Tool was going on their promotional tour and they got King Crimson to come with them. Okay, okay. Um, well, this record was super successful financially. Again, like I missed out on this completely, so I actually had kind of a like. A confusion over this next number this was the number one record in the united states when it came out on the billboard 200 like was that for like a week or a couple weeks i think it was like yeah like when it very first appeared when everyone ran to the store like me and bought the cd i suppose and again like this is uh right around the same time that like people were they hadn't fully transitioned over to digital yet so there was a yeah. lot of physical media purchasing I think hardly anybody had a uh, a digital media stash at this point. Like I remember in 2001 getting ready to move and making some harsh decisions about my um, collection. I didn't think, how am I going to rip all these CDs to hang on to it? I mean, they just, they just went to uh, oh. Newberry Comics. Okay. Um, I started like listening mostly electronically in like 99. Um, Seriously, but but yeah, like I was, I was also like really nerdily into that, and was using like I wasn't even using Napster. I was using like these stupid, obscure like alt file sharing uh, services and stuff. Okay. It was just like an easy way for me to get a hold of the bizarre music I was looking for. You know, there's a lot of stuff about the web that I realized I was a bit of an adopter of, an early adopter, but file sharing, music sharing, was not one of them. Okay. Well, that's probably a good thing. You weren't breaking any laws. Uh, yeah, never broke a law. <laughs> so the song Schism peaked at number 67 on the Billboard charts. The only other Tool song that's ever charted in the top 200, this is weird to me as well, is that 
recent record, the title track off the recent record, Fear Inoculum. Well, I'm sure that that was because it was released on digital and everybody bought everything all at once. Yeah, I I, I was just surprised by the numbers. Um, but yeah, so this record was successful. By 2003, two years after it came out, it sold two million copies. It was double platinum. Uh, they won the Grammy Award for Best Metal Performance for the song Schism. These are the people they were up against that year. Black Sabbath, Slayer, Slipknot, and System of a Down. Now, Chris is looking at me, everybody, as if I'm going to say something. And I'm looking at Chris like he might say something. So (laughs) what are we waiting for the other one to say? What I'm trying to imagine, first of all, I don't put a lot of stock in the Grammys, um, especially when it comes to subgenres of music like metal. Um, I I don't know if you remember when like High on Fire won a Grammy. Uh, It's just kind of hilarious. Like Jethro Tull beat Metallica. For a heavy metal performance yeah, in one so, of the Grammys. So like the um the metal folks are treated kind of like a freak show at the Grammys, and they're like, you know, they trot up, they receive their record, they say something weird, everybody laughs, and then it's done. And this seems to be what happened with this. Like the reports were that Tool went up there, and I think one of the band members said, like, I want to thank my dad for doing my mom. And then like somebody else, maybe the drummer, thanked Satan. And it yeah. was they just fucked around. Yeah. Um, and then I look at the the bands they're up against. Like, I like two of those bands, but they weren't really at the peak of their powers in 2002. You know, like Black Sabbath and Slayer weren't at their best then. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's do some straight numbers here. Metacritic. 75 out of 100 based on 15 critics. That seems low, doesn't it, given how critically acclaimed this is? Some people do not like this stuff oh, at yeah? all. Okay. And then uh, 8.9 user score with 588 ratings. That's not a lot of critics or ratings. It's kind of weird. It's almost like... It's more ratings than Silver historical. Bullet got. Remember when oh, we just yeah, did our right. Silver Bullet record, there was only like 10 people who rated that. You know what? I would just quit doing this <laughs> podcast if I heard that more people... We're interested in Silver Bullet than in Tools Lateralis. Well, I would be done. I have I have good news for you. They are not. So okay. <laughs> here I are guess a couple I'll keep other, doing this for a few more months then. Here are a couple more accolades that this Tool record got. I think this goes to show the like critical acclaim because it's more within the the like subcultures yeah, that appreciate genre specific, this. Yeah. yeah. So it was placed on the best album of the two thousands list for Consequence of Sound and Terrorizer. Uh, Kerrang! listed it as the top 100 greatest rock albums. Loudwire named it number one rock metal album of the 21st century. Holy cow. Uh, they also... Hey, we're not even close to done with the 21st century. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, but they're, they're on top of it, Loudwire. Uh, they also <laughs> ranked it number six in the top 25 progressive metal albums of all time. The album was also ranked as number 32 on Rolling Stone's 50 greatest prog rock albums of all time. And then Louder Sound placed it as number 33 on the top 100 prog albums of all time. So clearly, uh, whether like the band saw themselves as being prog rock or not, they are, they are taken that way by the media. Now, here's something really interesting, Chris. If you add up 1, 6, 32, and 33, 
and then divide it by the sum of 100 plus 206 plus 100. That's exactly how many measures are in this entire record. What? I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now we get to that whole numerology and like, you know, what's going on here? Why do people get so like into the details? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to I'm going to be a little meta here and just say, under our heading representation in our show notes, mm-hmm. there is one phrase: "More white dudes." I didn't find anybody discussing the uh, nature of diversity and representation in relation to this record. Not exactly. a big surprise. I also I don't know a ton about these band members, but like. I couldn't find anything about their sexuality or that that had anything to do with this record. It's not like Roddy Bottom with with Faith No More, right. for instance. And generally, it's understood that the Tool guys are uh, as private as they can be as touring musicians. Okay. But I think that Tool is one of the classic examples of white American privilege allowing artists to get really into the details of process and to examine like their inner space Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they don't have larger societal pressures or um, uh, cultural inferiority syndromes to deal with. Okay. Okay. They have the, um, the leeway, the freedom to get into the really nerdy shit. Yeah, that's interesting. So was this the theory that you had yeah. earlier? Yeah. Okay. Mine is a little bit more on the spiritual side of things. Okay. I think that the reason why counting is so important <laughs> to the fans of this record and maybe <laughs> the creators of the record as well is um, is the ritualistic practice of it. It's like saying the rosemary. Like there's a certain amount of repetition that um, psychologically creates like a fugue effect in the human mind. And I think that leaves one open to suggestibility, but it also is somewhat uh, anxiety relieving. And so I think that might be part of it, that it's like it's like saying the rosary or praying or something like that. Like there is a certain amount of reverence to the numbers because that uh, that is providing some kind of like out-of-body experience Uh, yeah i'll go with that so if if narrative pleasure comes from conflict resolution right there's Mm. a problem and then there's a resolution and then another problem and another resolution and the more the resolution is based on what the people in the conflict do or can do the more satisfying so then not being able to tell what time signature a song is in is a conflict right for a listener yeah. And to be able to resolve that by like figuring out the math problem can make those songs much more personally satisfying, you know? I agree, but but not for every listener either. Like like no. keep in mind, I would say like even 90% of the people who like Tool are probably not drilling down to that level, you know? Right, right. But if the question is why would counting be so important? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that that's the additional thing. Which is kind of what you said. It's a search think, for meaning. Yeah, but even less even less than meaning. It's just like, ooh, this is a more immersive experience than just turning on the radio and listening to a song. Mm-hmm. 
Right. If you want it to be, you can really get into it. Um, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like a David Lynch movie. I just watched, uh, what would Jack do? Is that what it's called? The, the, that's a little short film. Yeah. Yeah. The monkey movie that's on Netflix. Uh, and it, it's like the short film equivalent of a tool song. (laughs) Okay. Um, I want to talk about the lyrics a little bit. They are not, um, representative, right? They're not, uh, they don't present figures or personas. They are very much a, um, a first person description of a mental state. Okay. In almost every case. Okay. I'll take your word for it. I I mean, I heard them, but I didn't really have a, an immersive experience with them. My somewhat ambiguous proof of that is a, uh, a, a quote from Maynard from the 2001 Spin article. They're all about relationships, learning how to integrate communication back into a relationship. How are we as lovers, as artists, as brothers, how are we going to reconstruct this beautiful temple that we've built and that's tumbled down? It's universal relationship stuff. Okay, so these are not relationship songs in that they're about specific relationships he had. They're about abstract metaphorical relationships. Yeah, I I think that they are talking about sort of like, you know, if you wanted to make them very kind of uh, superficial, it's like this is self-help stuff. Hypothetical self-help situations. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, this is like super dark, almost nihilistic self-help. Uh, okay, I mean, spiral out, keep going, is is like improving, self-improvement, becoming what you want to be. Sure, you know? yeah. Um, so Sam Law from Kerrang Magazine pops back in here because he. He uh, has a take on like what the what the meaning of the lyrics are in this or overall, and he says uh, this is the this is the quote I was talking about earlier that the the difference this is a from Maynard the difference between Limp Biscuit and Tool fans is that a Tool fan can read Tool fans tend to be an audience who are clued up about life, um, brutally yeah. mean but accurate I don't know. Um, I, you know, I think that that's wishful thinking. I, I think that's that's a hope for an audience. That's yeah. like, I hope my music brings me an audience that is more discerning, you know, more educated, more um, aware of themselves beyond just like, the music's cool, man, which I don't think is true of every Tool fan. The only reason why I can see where he's coming from here, despite how harsh that statement is, is right around the same time that this record came out, I remember Fred Durst appearing on Howard Stern, and we were listening to it at work. And in the interview, Fred Durst proclaimed that he proudly had never read a book in his life. And even Howard Stern was like, that's fucking stupid. Yeah, and that might be the specific thing that Maynard was talking about. Yeah, it might be like the signifier that this is hanging on. Okay. So then Sam Law continues and he says, uh, on this record, Maynard is no longer playing the curmudgeonly victim. There was little of the wrath for posers and ignoramuses intruding on their highbrow existence. Gone was the near subliminal gross out references of yore. Righteous indignation was no longer enough. It was time to step up. 
This was the point at which fans, and crucially the band Tool themselves, began to understand they weren't just great, they could be the best. But breathing that rarefied air, being the smartest guys in the room, can be a lonely occupation. There's something to be said for not alienating those around you or putting them down, and the path to enlightenment means lifting your contemporaries up. Now that's a little overdone, overcooked. A little? Yeah. <laughs> but in here is what I'm talking about in terms of what the, the songs were trying to refer to. Yeah. Uh, no more wrath for posers, you know, no more wrath for particular people or attempts to gross folks out, which I think, uh, I think that's um, a hooker with a penis and stink fist from anima of okay. the specific references there. Um, the path to enlightenment. This was the construction of an idea of some kind of, um, you know, inner self relationship, an idea that, tool was now going to present a value system yeah or uh you know beliefs that one could adhere to they're right that they're no longer just a band that this is like this is a spiritual project yeah now maynard responded to that or uh kerrang found a quote that seemed like a response we're definitely products of that punk rock frame of mind it's about going against the grain, not necessarily for the sake of going against the grain, but because something needs to be done to redirect this broken situation in the music industry. Do we inspire devotion? I hope we don't inspire too much. For people to sit in the lotus position is not the goal. The goal for us is to inspire people to go and do something for themselves. Okay, mm. so this is interesting. It's like uh, they are starting to struggle with this fandom that we are recognizing around this time. Like it's been almost 20 years since then. So they probably has a, have a little bit of a better understanding of how to, how to cope with it and what it might mean. But they're getting this, he uses the term devotion, the same term that I used at the beginning of the episode that like, yeah, these aren't just fans. They're like adherents. They're acolytes of tool. And if you take at face value his anecdote about um, not being recognized and sending the, the fan off at Adam Jones, um, they don't or he does not have an interest in being a rock star that people adore. Yeah, he doesn't want to be their messiah. Well, I mean, messiah, certainly not, but not even the person that you talk to for a little while and then off you go having had a Maynard experience. He was like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, the rock stars over there. Go get him. Uh, Ryan Reed also wrote about this for Revolver Magazine. He said, around this time, Tool were as much a brand as they were a band, and that they were cultivating an aura of mystery, darkness, and sophistication, and that this was all done through things like their lack of promotion, their brooding videos, their elaborate time signatures, and their elliptical lyrical references. They were transcending actual music. Uh... Quote, if you liked Tool, you were as likely to love metaphysics as Meshuggah. But Lateralis proved that for all their grandiosity as a product, their music continued to evolve. No one sounded like Tool because no one could. It's funny, the, uh, the long gap in releases and the stuff like Maynard being on Joe Rogan yeah. or Danny Carey doing drum clinics kind of takes away from what Ryan Reed's describing there well we have the the perspective of hindsight 
yeah, for that. Totally. Yeah. Well, yeah. Over 20 years, whatever this lateralis kind of, oh, wow. Do they all live in the same house and sit in the lotus position and, and you know, contemplate uh, diagrams of chakras? Well, I think one of the things that's kind of amusing is I see a lot of parallels here with how people talk about Fugazi. That's uh, exactly how, what I was thinking. Of. Yeah. yeah. You know, they all live in the same house with no heat with no heat. Right. Yeah. The whole like what they don't they don't use heating and like, of course they do. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, there's, there's just no air conditioning in the discord. House. There's just some kind of like absurdism into like imagining, uh, the, the, the lives of these guys. Like they were somehow like ascetic monks or something, but they're not, they're like, I mean, the thing about occult stuff in the studio and, and geekery, you know, collecting, they're just into a kind of indescribable, but immediately understandable 90s kind of horror film mm -hmm. consciousness expanding uh not too worried x-file fandom sort of grooviness yeah i think that's right around the time when this stuff really became uh like broader than just like niche fandom right like there were stores in the mall where you could particularly go to uh, shop to affect that identity that you're talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know that that's what tool we're going for in particular, but they were sort of swept up in it. Um, yeah. It, and, it's, and this brings us to the fact that this came out in the summer of 2001. Right. I knew this was going to be triggering for you. So why don't you go ahead? Uh, you know, it's, I just don't like the memory, of course. I don't think anybody does. Uh, this, uh, the reason I mentioned the X-Files fandom in particular is that throughout the 90s, building up to 2001, building up to September 11th, 2001, I think uh, we started to have a slightly uh, decadent or relaxed kind of sense of uh, what are you into? What are we thinking about? Are there aliens? You know, is there, are there conspiracies? What's going on on inner space? What will we do? Who are we? Mm -hmm. And then September 11th. More white was like, people shit. Yeah. And then September 11th was sort of a, hey, hey, shut the fuck up kind of moment for folks like that. Yeah. I mean, you're really condensing it down. We've talked about this before on the show, how it that that was a moment that sort of changed the zeitgeist. So that we didn't have the privilege of sitting around and, and worrying about things like that as much. Although, so there's two things that I come away with. The first is that I feel like today, as we're recording this as a country, we're even more privileged to have uh, the time to worry about conspiracy theories or, or whatever than we were even then. And I'm, I am struck by how... Uh, how affected you are by 9-11 and how much the the person writing about this record thought about it as being like a signifier. Mm. Uh, this is not a joke. I mean, I, I think that some of the trauma that you experienced as a young person yeah. diminished the kind of uh, the mind-changing trauma of 9-11. Yeah, it's sort of like what we were talking about with horror as inoculation. Yeah. That like yeah. I was, I don't know that I was more prepared for it, but I was less affected by it. So 
uh, this is this is kind of a weird personal moment. We, we might take this out of the episode. Uh, Charlie and I knew each other in 2001. We were friends. And uh, Charlie was so affected by 9-11 that, like, you, you kind of had, like, an existential crisis. I freaked out, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember being like, wow, like, I, I feel bad for him that this is affecting him so much, but also not relating. And just kind of being like, yeah, that was really horrible that that happened, but moving, moving on with, you know, the progress of my life. Yeah. Um, and I, I look back at nine 11 now as, as surely like a, a horrible event that happened in history, but I don't, I don't look at it as like a, a, a significant personal marker for, for me. Yeah. If that makes sense. Absolutely. I might've had a very different experience if I had been living in Atlanta, if I had been yeah. living with my family. Um, if, if nine 11 were to happen and my circumstances were exactly what I have now, I would have had a very different experience, but I was a dude who lived alone and didn't talk to anybody from Friday at 5 PM until Monday at 8 AM. Unless you're hanging out with me. Yeah. Most weekends. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, I just, um, yeah, like I, uh, maybe, maybe not. I, you know what? I don't remember when I went out, but uh, I know that I spent great chunks of time alone and in my head and not miserable, but very sort of like, well, what's the point of me? Yeah. Yeah. Why, why am I? Who yeah. am I? What am I doing? And uh, it was not a despairing kind of self-reflection. Yeah. And I was not prepared at all for the intrusion of the rest of the world. Um. So do you think then that that you have like an association between this record and that time for your, for your life? I'm sure I do because that that summer, you know, spending a lot of time listening to this record, um, you know, the the grandiose reviews, right? Certainly fit the way the record felt. Like it was a really yeah. powerful, almost mystical experience, and it was cut short in a way. That summer, in a way, was cut short by September 11th, but also that record then was sort of fixed in a particular uh, yeah, time, yeah. right before right before the Garden of Eden was dismantled, or right before I was kicked out, or whatever you want to, whatever so, kind of metaphor you want to play with. So I think I can equate this to actually to a different band for myself. Let me see if I can do this, although I don't have the same uh, associations with them. Uh, I saw Unwound on their final tour two days before 9-11. And uh, you've mentioned this before. The story goes that like 9-11 happened and they were supposed to play, I think, in New York the next day. And they just canceled their entire tour and drove home. Um, And I always think of that show of seeing them on a college campus in Western Massachusetts in relation to 9-11, even though the two things had nothing to do with one another. They just happened to be in the same time and relative space. Yeah. And the intensity of one of those can make the other one feel different. Yeah. Yeah. So this is again tied into this idea that Tool wasn't just a band anymore. They were like something spiritual. And that's because there are these quotes here from them playing shows after 9-11 and Keenan sounds like a priest to me in the way that he's addressing the audience. 
Um, he says things like this. We found it difficult for us to concentrate, but then he would get up on stage and say, I have a suggestion for you, audience. Take the feelings that you've experienced in the last few days and hang on to them, whether they're good or bad. Create something positive with them. Like a month later, they played at Madison Square Garden, and 9-11 was a topic that came up. And uh, Chancellor was interviewed backstage, and he said, it's going to be very heavy playing at that location in light of the World Trade Center tragedy. We're all stunned by what happened, just like everybody else is. It was horrible, but we have to heal. We're just a band. But if we can just take someone away from all of that and they can smile for a little bit because of us, we've done something worthwhile. So it's like the band has become a project. It's, it's the self-help thing again that you mentioned. Yeah. There's a gentle arrogance to imagining that you can uh, invoke someone else's emotional state in the, in the wake of a universal event. Yeah, like they're providing a certain kind of solace the way that a church would. Right. I mean, if he's saying, you know, let's create something positive about what you're feeling right now. Let me do my own thing here. But he had good intentions, I think, by saying that, you know, I mean, here's the thing that I find really interesting about all the 9-11 talk around them is that like, I don't think of, or at least I didn't at that time, think of Tool as a band that really had a whole lot to do with politics or world events um, or had much concern with like terrorist attacks in other parts of the world. No, they, they were a band that seemed concerned with and made people think of inner lives. And if we, if we just burn through a bunch of references and other reviews, we can find that. Yeah. Um, James Ryan Leonard in Medium wrote that Lateralis strikes me as one of those rare moments when an already great band makes a giant leap forward. They went from seething and bitter to focused and even optimistic in the blink of an eye. For an album that features time signatures inspired by the Fibonacci sequence, people fucking love to talk about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Lateralis also includes a surprisingly consistent strain of practical wisdom that seems to lean towards stoicism. Here we go again, right? The album reads like an individual's journey through and around adversity, through their frustration and their growth and their ultimate serenity. Tools like the I, Tony Robbins of metal. I believe that without the backdrop of 9-11. Yeah, this would not be nearly as explicit for a lot of people. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. He even says, rather than overthinking or overanalyzing, which separate the body from the mind, as the title track reminds us, like he quotes the kind of like value-driven description of action from I, Maynard in one of the songs. As if it's verse. Again, like yeah. it's like as somebody being like, this is in, in it. Yeah. the book with a capital B. Trevor Cheney, again, from the Missouri Baptist University Student News Network. He says that lateralis requires multiple listens, years of listening. In order to capture the true message, you need time, an open mind, and some mathematical skills. David Frick in Rolling Stone says you need time to deal with lateralis a lot more than 77 minutes. You will wonder, what the fuck is going on here? So much of Tool's third full-length studio album makes so little sense at first. But that is one of Lateralis's most endearing qualities. It rolls out its pleasures and coherence slowly, even stubbornly. This is, I mean, again, it's overcooked. But right? let, me, let me see if I can propose like a, a, a kind of working theory of what's going on, right? Um, this comes out 
relatively soon before uh, a traumatic event for Americans in terms of like their understandings of context and the culture they live in. Um, and they're looking, there are a number of Americans who don't have things in their community like church or I don't know, a therapist in order to try to process the feelings that they're experiencing. And this seems to be like a pop cultural totem that people reached out to in their search for meaning in the wake of that event. I mean, I, I would believe that if you think about a kind of um, a platonic ideal of a tool fan, that is a kind of person who is not going to head down to the community center or um, attend church services yeah. or, um, or even go to therapy. I don't think that there were a lot of 28 year old new metal uh, thinking <laughs> man's you know prog rock fans who were like you know god damn a love limp biscuit tool so fucking cool and i've got therapy in the morning <laughs> right now right. i could be totally wrong i could be totally off base i have no doubt that there's someone who just heard me say that and is like you know fuck you i i went to therapy you know throughout that time and i love limp biscuit and tool so get off my dick but uh there there is this kind of uh privileged place that tool fandom seems to land very similar to progressive rock from the late sixties and early seventies. So then let's uh, look at this with the hindsight of two hours ago before we talked about all of this. So you chose this record because it was important to you, but also because you think it's really important in the history of this band. Um, you are a fan of this record. You're a fan of prog rock, but you've, I wouldn't say dismissively, but pretty like astutely defined this stuff as uh, uh, like aesthetic that's for privileged people who don't have anything else to worry about in this episode. How does that make you feel about this content now? I don't mind being in a privileged place. I don't think that that somehow means that there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. I certainly uh, think about it more than I did before. Uh, I think that it's easy to get confused about why stuff like this feels important, you know? Um, and I teach a class, Chris, and when I get to the aesthetics part of the workshop, um, I, uh, I always say aesthetics is a subject that you can get a PhD in and be wrong about all the time. So I'm not going <laughs> to talk about truth or beauty or what's good or bad, you know? And to me, that's kind of what Tool feels like. You know, if you want to get into it and start talking about its deeper meanings or what it, um, you know, its importance or its pleasures or coherence, it's very easy to get into a place where you're just, you're just talking shit. But the experience of Tool and of Lateralis is still wonderful to experience despite or maybe even because of what happened at the end of the summer that I listened to Tool nearly nonstop. You've been listening to Super Context, a podcast autopsy of media. How it's made and how it informs our everyday culture. 
Our theme music is Human Factor by Mile Marker. And right now you're listening to Drive Fast by Three Chain Links. Show notes and all our past episodes are available at supercontextpodcast.libson.com. You can email the show at supercontextpodcast at gmail.com to tell us what you like, what you don't like, and to suggest topics for future shows. And I'm available on Twitter as at Christian Sager. And I'm there at Bennett Radio. Two N's, two T's.